Uh, if you're new to Revolution Church, and again, we're thankful to have several first-time guests this morning, um, we like to study the Bible the way that it's written. We study it book by book, and so right now we are in the Gospel of Luke, and we're getting to know the real Jesus, because the world has a perception about Jesus that's not exactly accurate. The Bible gives you a, a really accurate uh, version of Jesus. In fact, he's a little rough around the edges. We want... You know, Art wants a picture of Jesus that's like blonde-haired, blue-eyed sissy that couldn't hurt a puppy dog, you know. And we see a Jesus that overturns tables and gets in the face of the Pharisees is really direct. Good morning, Miss Pat. How are you? Come on over here. Let me have you come and read the God's Word for us this morning. Okay, y'all follow along as Miss Pat reads God's Word for us. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and, do, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you, make the, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said, and after looking around at them all, he said to them, to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, here once again, you see that Jesus' biggest opponents are religious people. Religious people. You know, today that's still the problem. The majority of people on this planet will go to hell not because they don't believe in God, but because they believe in the wrong God. They're religious. Look at what's happening in the Middle East. Israel versus Hamas. That's not two different ethnic groups. In fact, if you saw them on the street, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between an Israeli Jew and a member of Hamas. They, they look pretty much the same. They have the same olive skin and dark hair. You have two religious groups killing and murdering each other in the name of their God. Isn't that crazy? Religion can be a really evil thing. Religion can send you to hell because you believe the wrong thing. And what happens is religion is, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then God will accept me. And the Bible says, no, Christ died on the cross for your sins, and that's why God accepts you. There's nothing good in and of ourselves that makes God say, oh, look at you, I like you, come on to heaven. That's not it. And yet that's what every religion in the world teaches. They've all got their different lists, but it's basically the same thing. You do something right, and then you can say, hey, look at me. I'm better than them. And it's all about pride. It's all about pride and ego and what can I do for God instead of saying, you know what? God has done everything for me. 
So we're going to look at this passage of Scripture here, and we're going to divide it up into five different sections here, and we'll go through it quickly. But it's all about questions. Number one, why do you, last week we learned this, why do you feast with sinners? Remember, Jesus went to the home of Levi slash Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, Matthew, he called Matthew to be a follower. Matthew left how much? He left everything, went home, had a feast at his home. So he invites all of, he has a big party. Invites all of his tax collectors and who are evil people, and all of the, the sinners, the prostitutes, everybody to his house to meet his new best friend, Jesus. And they're like, "Why are you doing that? Why are you hanging out with this crowd of people?" That was last week's question. I'm I'm, I'm reviewing it today because it fits into the chiastic structure, which I'll tell you more about. Then the question that I asked today is, "Why don't you fast like other people do?" And then the third thing here is, "Can this is a question Jesus is basically asking them." Can the new fix or fill the old? And then they ask another question. Why do you work on the Sabbath? And then their last question is, why do you heal on the Sabbath? Now, if you look at this carefully, last week's question and then the questions today, the first two are are the Pharisees asking questions, then Jesus turning it back on them, and then they ask two more questions. In the middle of this chiastic structure, you'll see right there, the main point of today is, can the new fix or fill the old? Can Jesus' new covenant, the new promises that he's bringing, can it fit into old religion? And the answer, as you can tell, is no. But they point us, a chiastic structure, if you're new to revolution, it's it's like a sandwich that God is building. There's bread, there's mayonnaise if you're smart, there's lettuce, you know, and then there's the meat of the sandwich, or you can put cheese or whatever, and then you work your way out, and it's the same thing. And the layers match each other, but the meat is what's in the middle. And that's what we're going to look at again today. So this first question for today is, why don't you fast like others? Here's the question they asked. And they said to him, the disciples of John, who was John? John the Baptist. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one who went to prepare the way. He had disciples of his own. But eventually he started turning his disciples over to Jesus because he was the one preparing the way for him. He wasn't trying to do a competitive religious denomination going on here. He was there to prepare the way for Jesus. And so he was turning them all over to them. And, and John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. So, but that, when they were preparing the way, he was calling the nation to repentance. He's saying, hey, you, you think you're God's chosen people, but in your heart, you're far away from him. And just like we call Gentiles, if they want to come to God, they get baptized. I'm calling all y'all to be baptized. So John the Baptist was baptizing people in the River Jordan, and he was calling people to repent of their sins, which included a process called fasting, doing without food for an extended period of time. People talk about fasting today. It's popular, but it's all about losing weight. <laughs> you know. And yes, it can get your physical body in shape by fasting, but the Bible talks about doing it not only to get your physical body in, but to get your mind cleared, to get your heart ready so that God can speak to you more. Fasting is a great endeavor for that. And so while they were fasting, they were praying. And you'll see in the Bible, fasting and prayer always go to, goes together. It should. If you do it for dietary reasons, great. But why not pray while you're doing it? And it says, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. And again, the Pharisees were the extreme right of, of the religious there group of people who had started off as a good things, but then they became overly legalistic to where not only was the Bible the Word of God, but all the commentaries on the Bible were the Word of God. And you need to follow them rigidly. And it says, but yours eat and drink. In other words, you guys party. <laughs> you guys are eating and drinking and having a great time. What's the deal with that? Why are you not fasting and praying like we do and like John the Baptist does? And Jesus says to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So picture this. Let's say you get an invitation in the mail for a wedding. And it says, you know, we're going to be joined in matrimony on this day. We want you to join us, but at this wedding, There's not going to be a reception with any food. We want you to fast all the day before and that day with us. And we're going to put on sackcloth and ashes and we're going to repent of our sins on this wedding day. (laughs) That'd be the dumbest wedding ever. Weddings are a thing to celebrate. And, And you say, well, what wedding's going on, Gary? Jesus is the bridegroom. He's come to get his bride. Who's the bride? We are, right? The church. And so he's come to get us. He's come to to be betrothed to us. He's come to pay the price for our dowry, which is on the cross. And we're the wedding guests. And so at a wedding, you celebrate, you party, you have a great time. 
And he goes on to say, but the days will come when the bridegroom, and who's the bridegroom again? Jesus is taken away. What is that referring to? It's when they come take him and they crucify him on the cross and he's dead and gone for three days. Okay, Then he appears again, but then he's gone for 2,000 years and then he returns again like Hosea says he would do. And so Christ is coming soon, we believe. And so he's taken away from them. In those days, which is the day we're living in right now, the bridegroom is away. He has not come back to get us for the wedding feast yet. So in these days, we will fast and we will mourn. We will pray. We'll do those things. But when Christ was there in person to put the engagement ring on, on his bride, that's when you celebrate. So we move to the next point here is, is, is the can the new fix, the, fix or fill the old? Can the new fix or fill the old? He also told them a parable. Now, a parable is often said to be an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Most of the time, that's true. And so this is a story that's illustrating something bigger than just the elements in the story. No one tears a piece from a new garment. Okay, now keep in mind, let's say a patch. This is the good thing, okay? And you put it on an old garment. When I was a kid, we... Levi jeans were very popular. Everybody wore Levi's, okay? It didn't seem like there wasn't any other jean, you know? And uh, my mom would be buy me a new pair of jeans. And I'm like, Gary, don't tear those jeans. And, of course, I'd go out and play football, and we'd play, like, right next to the sidewalk. So sometimes you get tackled on the sidewalk, you tore a knee in your hole. Now, mom did not buy you a new pair. Of, now, of course, today, that'd be popular to have holes in my jeans, okay? In fact, you pay extra for every number of holes you have. They add $50 to the price of the jeans. Now, but back then, you didn't want to have holes in your jeans because it looked like you were poor. And so mom did not buy Gary a new pair of Levi's. She got an iron-on patch and sewed it on there, okay? So I looked like I wasn't so poor, but I was still somewhat poor. And so that's what you did with jeans back then. And, of course, if you washed it then, then the, 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 the patch would shrink. The jeans were already shrunk, and you'd get kind of wrinkly looking. And that's what he's talking about here. You can't take a new cloth that hasn't been washed and hasn't been shrunken and put it on an old garment, because old garment's already been shrunk, so now it's going to shrivel up, and you, what, what you're going to have will kind of look like this right here in this picture right here. Shrinking up, shrivels around it. So he says if he does, he will tear the new. The new one is going to suffer because of it. Now keep in mind, the new is good. Talking about the new things that Christ gives. Okay, This new thing will, be, will suffer, it will be torn, and the piece that the new will not even match the old. They don't go together, kind of like you can see in this picture right here. So no one puts new wine, second illustration here, into old wineskins. Now, we're not familiar with that. We don't live in a culture where we have, essentially we have a vineyard right next door, but we don't really know about this practice of wineskins. They would often take the skin of an animal, even often an internal organ, like the stomach of an animal, and they would dry it out, okay? And they would use that like as a leathery pouch to put wine in. And they'd sew up the bottom of it and they'd pour it into the top. And then they'd seal off the top. And they would do something that basically looked like this. That they could use a liver, a bladder, or any type of internal organ from an animal and use this, that leathery thing from the inside, to hold wine in it. And so if you took, and so if you took a fresh wineskin, it hasn't got stretched out yet. You pour wine in it, or basically you pour grape juice in it, allow it to ferment. What's it going to do? It's going to expand. And so that new wineskin will stretch with it. But an old wineskin has already been stretched, all it's going to stretch. You put new wine in it, when it starts the fermentation process and it expands, it's just going to burst. And as you can see on this one, if you look carefully, it's leaking all around the edges because it's an old wineskin with new wine in it. They don't go together. So what this is teaching us is Jesus is not a patch to fill, fix the Old Covenant. Okay, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the laws, the rules, the regulation, Jesus didn't come to make Judaism just a little bit better. He's not just a small patch on a big old garment. He is altogether a new and better garment. That's what he's trying to teach them here. And Jesus did not come to fit into the old wineskin, the Old Covenant. It cannot contain the new wine that he offers. Jesus is offering something so much bigger and so much better than they had in their small rules and regulations. Now, God didn't mess up when he gave us the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Those were all illustrations. They were all foreshadows of what was to come in the future. So it's like if you, know, if you have a 
a little toy action figure of someone famous, and you the little kid plays with that, but then they meet the real person. They don't just say, hey, why don't you act like the toy? It's like, no, forget the toy. The real person is here. And that's what Jesus is basically saying. I'm bigger, I'm better, I'm offering you way more. Consider an acorn. I think this is fascinating. This little tiny thing has all the code, all the DNA, everything it needs to become something much bigger and much better in the form of an oak tree. You can't take that oak tree and try to fit it back into the acorn. The old covenant is the acorn. Jesus coming and fulfilling all of that is the oak tree. He is something much more bigger, better, more powerful, way in proportion. So don't put aside the Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, and act like, well, they're just pretty much equal parts of the same thing. No, the, the New Testament is an explosion of what the Old Testament promised. This, this applies to us personally. C.S. Lewis has a great illustration. He talks about how you have, live in a cute little comfortable cottage that you love and you really like it, but it needs a few repairs here and there. So you ask uh, uh, someone who does reconstruction and remodeling to come in. You ask Jesus, would you come in and fix up my little cottage here? I want you to make my little cottage better. And so Jesus takes a sledgehammer and he starts punching out walls. He's like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, slow down. I didn't want you to do that. I just had a little leak over here. need a little painting over here. want to fix the porch here. And he's like, no, no, we're busting out walls. We're tearing this place down. And, and the, the process can be painful, and we don't like it. And Jesus is doing much more than we asked him to do. But he's like, I'm not here to build you, a, a remodel your cottage. And now the picture went away here. There was a picture of a mansion. Anyway, um, Jesus wants to build us a mansion much, much bigger than just this little bitty cottage. But we don't like to go through the, the sledgehammer process. <laughs> you know? I, I um, One of the biggest misconceptions of, that Christians often portray on new believers is, oh man, if you trust Christ as your Savior, you make Him Lord of your life, everything's going to be wonderful. Not. <laughs> you know, in fact, I prepare people that be prepared if you truly follow Christ, things will get worse. Okay? Because think of this. If you are lost, you're not a child of God, you're lost in your sin, you haven't repented your sin, you're just confused, you're spiritually blind, your best friend is Satan. And he's like, just stay right where you're at. In fact, I'll make things really comfortable for you because I want you to stay right here in this darkness and just be comfortable right here. Your enemy is God. But he loves you. you you've sworn uh, um, allegiance to Satan. You haven't maybe consciously done it, but you're like, no, God, I'm running my own life. And God's like, okay, I love you, but I'm going to pursue you. Now, he's a good enemy to have, okay? But then when you cross the line of faith and you become a believer and follower in Jesus Christ, Satan's like, oh, man, it's on now. And he comes at you with all guns a-blazing. God doesn't do that to you. He loves you. But Satan now hates you, and he will start throwing things at you. And people will be like, man, I thought if I became a Christian, things would get better. It doesn't work that way. There's the mansion. Good. This is what God wants to do for you. But it's going to take this painful process. It's going to take busting out some walls. It's going to take some ripping out some wires and cutting things. And it may be a painful process, but that's what God wants to do for you. Jesus is not a quick fix for the problems in your life. Man, I, I've sadly seen this so many times as a pastor in the last 37 years where I see a young couple or maybe even an older couple that comes to church and they're like, yeah, pastor, we need some help. Our marriage is really on the rocks. And I'm like, okay, great. Yeah, we'll keep coming to church. Let's do some counseling. And I start meeting with them on Tuesday nights. I start doing some marriage counseling, try to help them, give them tools to make things better in their life. And guess what? The, the biblical tools start working and things start getting better, and their marriage starts getting better, and they stop coming to church. So it's like, well, we got what we want. We want our marriage to be better. We just want Jesus to come in and be a patch, and patch on a hole in our jeans. We want to just a quick remodel on our little cottage. And what they don't realize is God's offering them a mansion, something bigger and better. They don't want to necessarily go through the process. Jesus is not a quick fix for the problems in your life. He is supposed to be your life. He's supposed to be everything. He's not supposed to be a little wedge in the pie. He's supposed to be all of it, over every part of it. It's not like, well, you know, I've got my job, I've got my hobbies, I've got my family, and then there's Jesus over here, and that's a little part of my life too. 
No, he wants to be involved in your job. He wants to be the center of your marriage. Your marriage is supposed to be an illustration of him and his church. He wants to be involved in the raising of your children that are really his children, and that your job that he gave you to where you could be a light to a dark world. He wants to be everything for you. So in verse 38, it says, but the new wine, which is a picture of the gospel, must be put into fresh wineskins. The wineskin that contains the gospel and the Holy Spirit of God is the born-again believer. So you can't take a lost person, an old wineskin, and pour the new gospel into that. It doesn't go together. The gospel, the Christian life, is not for lost people to try to live. So, But the new wine, which is the gospel, must be put into fresh wineskins, which is born-again believers. So follow me with this. A lost person, someone who doesn't know Christ, they have not been born again, they don't have the Holy Spirit, they're, and they're trying to live out the Christian life, they will be frustrated, discouraged, and eventually quit. You've seen that happen. You've seen people come, and it seems like they're all on board, and they're doing everything, and it's like this. This is too hard. This is too hard. And they get frustrated. They wonder, why can't I do all these things? And they still feel the guilt. They still feel the shame. They still feel the embarrassment because they're, they're not able to do it. And deep down inside, their heart's like, but I want this. But the Bible says do this. And I'm like, ah. And they just this war within. And eventually they lose the war because they're walking in their own flesh and their own abilities and not in the ability of the, Holy, of the power of the Holy Spirit. So what you've got is an old wineskin, an old person in their, still in their sin, trying to contain a new, fresh wine. And when it starts to expand and blow up their life, they can't handle it. And they, be, they burst at the seams. It says that no one, after drinking old wine, which is talking about the old covenant, the law, desires new. For he says, well, the old is good. Now, this is in a culture where in our culture, everything new is great. What's the newest song? What's the newest trend? What's the newest thing on Twitter? What's the newest thing on you know, Snapchat? Whatever. What's new? What's the new buzzword? What's the new way of talking? You know, what's the latest drip? We want to have all these new things. And then in this culture, in, in the Bible, though, it was what was old. Well, the old people say, do this. We're going to do that. The old way of doing it is this. And in their culture, the older you were, the wiser you were, let's do things the old way. And, and there's some truth to that, but not when it comes to knowing God. Jesus was trying to bring in something new here. And, and so they were like, no, 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 I'm going to go back. I'm going to drink of the old wine. Well, new wine is not as intoxicating. Old wine is. In fact, if you were to go to a fine restaurant, you know, they would say, oh, well, here's the Chateau, blah, 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 in French or whatever from 1948. And it's like really old, so it must be the better wine. And so they drink of that, they get intoxicated by the old religion, and they say, I don't need Jesus' new stuff. That's what I believe this passage is teaching right here. So you look, look at the chiastic structure with me again. Why are you hanging out with sinners? Why don't you fast like others? And Jesus' answer is, can you take this new thing I'm offering and try to fix your old religion? No, it's not going to work. So then they move on to the next question. Why do you work on the Sabbath? Why do you work on the Sabbath? So on a particular Sabbath day, while they were going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain and rubbing them together in their hands, you know, basically they're, they're, they're uh, what's it called, winnowing. Okay, you know how they would throw the wheat up in the air and the wind would blow and the chaff would be separated from the wheat and you could eat the wheat, the kernels. So they're basically doing a small level winnowing and then eating that grain in their hands. Now what's interesting is the Bible says don't work on the Sabbath. Would you or I call grabbing a handful of grain and putting your, you know, winning it and putting your mouth work? No. But the Pharisees did. That's how strict they were. They were like, okay, here's our rule. What is work? Well, you can pluck grain, but you can't eat it because bringing it to your mouth will be work. So you can pluck grain, but you can't rub it. So if you do any two of these three, that's called work. And that was their rules. It was not God's rules, okay? But they kept adding on and adding on new rules and new regulations. That's why, be careful when you read the Bible. He'll say, you know, Jesus will say, you've seen that it's written, thus, thus, and thus, but I say to you, he said, but you've also heard it's been said. Whenever you see in the Bible, you've heard it's been said. He's not quoting Old Testament. He's quoting their laws. He, he always affirms what is written, but he questions what they say, because that's them adding on. So that's what they look at as work. And again, they're, they're, they're being hyper-legalistic. And there's some people that are that, that are that way with Christianity. They just take and add layers and layers of rules. 
In fact, one interesting example of that is, um, remember in the Garden of Eden, God told them, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then when Satan was discussing it with Eve, he said, did God really say that? And he, she said, God said you should not eat it, neither should you touch it. Where did the touch it come from? In fact, wasn't it Adam and Eve's job to care for the trees of the garden? They would have had to touch them to prune them and to fertilize them, do all that stuff. But I think, I don't know where it came from. This is my guess. God gave that commandment to Adam, and Adam told Eve, don't eat it. In fact, don't even touch it, because <laughs> he didn't want to get in close to it. And so that legalism is what opened the loophole to like, man, God's not even reasonable when it wasn't him that said it that way in the first place. <clears throat> Verse 2 says, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful? And again, lawful here doesn't mean God's law, it's man's law, okay? And that's where evil religion comes in, where you're doing things that man created for man to do and not things that God created for man to do. Deuteronomy 23, 25, this is God's law, not man's law. It says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle. God drew the line at work as in you start picking up power tools and swinging. Now you're working. And yes, I don't want you doing that on the day of rest. He didn't say anything about using your hands, but they, they took it to another level. And, it, and of course, in this culture, we look at private property, private property differently today. Like if, someone, if a farmer had a field, you don't even walk through it. That's private property. He's going to put a fence around it, maybe even some barbed wire. But in biblical days, the whole community didn't want everybody to walk all the way around 17 acres to get to where they were going. You were allowed to walk through somebody's property. It was just a common thing. You'd see a path where he'd been walking. You walked the same way. And Israel was taught to be such a sharing community that if, let's say you're walking through your neighbor's apple orchard and you were hungry. You could grab an apple in your neighbor's property and keep walking and eat it. You couldn't harvest a whole bunch. You could just take one and eat. You can grab some grain. It wasn't considered stealing. It was all part of the social construct of, of sharing with one another. So he's saying, hey, you have permission to walk through your neighbor's property, grab some grain, put it in your mouth. Just don't use a sickle because then, then you really are stealing from your neighbor. Let's see. And Jesus answered him, have you not read? Now, remember who he's talking about to. Context is king, right? Who is he talking to? It's the Pharisees and the scribes. What was their job? They were full-time religious people studying the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And he's like, have you even read it? <laughs> I mean, you can see the sarcasm here. Jesus is, <clears throat> that's why I don't feel so bad when I'm so sarcastic with you all, all the time. Jesus was very sarcastic, okay? He says, have you even read it? Have you ever even bothered to read Deuteronomy? He said, and have you also not read in 2 Samuel what David did when he was hungry? He, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel. And he, those that were with him, so David was on the run. He's being chased by Saul, and, and, he, and he's running for his life. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 2, he ate some bread that most people were not allowed to eat. And it says how he entered the house of God, the temple, okay, the holy place, and he took and he ate the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence is where they would bake 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel. They'd put it in the Holy of Holies next to the incense, next to all the other holy things in there. And this was food for God, not that God would come down and eat it. He's not like the Hindu gods who actually try to eat the food and things like that. It was just something for his presence to recognize him. And as they presented each loaf of bread, they were presenting the 12 tribes of Israel, saying, we are God's people. And how it was not lawful for anybody but the priest to eat. And the priest couldn't eat it for a certain amount of time. And after that, they got the leftover bread, and they were allowed to eat it, but nobody else. But David and his soldiers come in, and they're like, man, we're starving. And in the, uh, the movie, the, uh, the show The Chosen, this is portrayed out really well. And uh, anyway, and so the priest's like, okay, we'll let you, but you have to follow the same rules we do. And they let him eat that. And so they ate what which wasn't for, allowed. And he said to him, and this is a bold statement that Jesus says, the son of man, which is the phrase that Jesus called himself more than any other. And in our Western mindset, we have this backwards. We think son of God up here, son of man down here. It's the other way around. Okay, because on one level, we're all the sons and children of God, but only one person can qualify as the son of man. This is referring back to Daniel's prophecy about the one who has the power at the right hand of the throne. Jesus was claiming deity right here on two counts, not only by saying the son of man, but he also says the son of man is 
Lord of the Sabbath. Now think about that. Who gave us the Sabbath? God did. The God of Genesis. That God created the earth in how many days? Six days, right? And we believe in a literal six days that God spoke the world into existence. And on the seventh day, he what? He rested. And the, we, and the Bible says in the evening and the morning were the first day, so we know there's a literal 24-hour days. And on the seventh day, God rested, not because he was tired, but because he wanted to set an example for us. He said, so you too should on the seventh day, one day a week, you should rest and honor me. And he says, that was me that gave you that day. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I not only spoke the world into existence, Jesus is saying, I created the world, and I'm the one who gave you the Sabbath. And they're like, what? You know, and when people read the Bible and say, Jesus never claimed to be God, they're not reading it even carefully at all. In Exodus 20, 22, look who's speaking here. I am the Lord your God. This is Exodus. This is God on the mountain giving the commandments to Moses. When you see Lord in all caps, what name is that? Yahweh, or sometimes transliterated Jehovah. Yahweh is saying, I am your God. You remember the Sabbath. You keep it holy. And then Jesus says, that was me, Lord of the Sabbath. And that's why there's so many times they took up stones to stone him because he was claiming to be equal with God. So, again, the center of this is what do you do with new wine? And then we say, of course, they go back with their questions. Why do you work on the Sabbath? And that brings us to their last question. Why do you heal on the Sabbath? Let's go into it. So on another Sabbath, Jesus enters the synagogue. And you see that happening. Jesus didn't skip church. Jesus was there. Every time the synagogue was there, he was open. He was there, and he was teaching. And a man whose right hand was withered. Now, Jesus. every time you see Jesus preaching, you see him teaching more often than he's preaching. And we've had a whole sermon on that. You can check it out online on what's the difference between preaching and teaching. People always say, well, you teach, Gary. You don't really preach. But that's not biblical. A lot of people in our culture today, we think preaching is hooping and hollering and crooning. You know, and Mary had a little lamb. His fleece is white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Amen. You know, it's like, what did he just say? And it's like more like a pep rally. We call that preaching. It's not. It's not. Anyway, listen to the sermon later. Um, it says here that this man's right hand was withered. In other words, we don't know if it's withered on the skin like a disease that's eating away. It wouldn't have been leprosy because he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple. Or have you ever seen the people with that common handicap where one hand doesn't fully develop and it's like this and it's shortened? I think it was this one type of withered hand, okay? Which hand is it? It's his right hand. And most people in the world are what? Right-handed. The rest of y'all are weird. Most people in the world are right-handed, okay? And your right hand is your, how many southpaws do we have in the house? Okay, yeah, you're left hand. See, told you. Okay, uh, your right hand for most people was your hand of strength. It's what you worked with. It's what you wrote with. It's what you did everything. In fact, in some cultures, even in the Middle East today, your left hand is evil. It's what you wipe with. Sorry, be crude. And your right hand, you shake hands with. That's why we shake hands with our right hand, because your left hand does other dirty things. That's the, just the culture, Okay. So this guy's main hand, his hand of strength, his hand that was clean, his hand that was good, it's gone, okay? And it was probably born that way. It was withered, okay? And it wasn't something like, oh, I have pain in his hand. Oh, touch. Oh, I'm healed. It was an incredible miracle for all to see that was incredibly obvious. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. They're like, okay, you know what? We've heard Jesus heals. I bet he's going to do it today. And if he does, he's in big trouble. They watched him to see they're looking, they're trying to discern whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Why aren't they watching to see if he would do it to say, oh, he really is God. Wow, look at that. But they're watching for the wrong reasons. And this is what it's all about questions. They ask two questions, he returns a question, they ask two more questions. And asking questions is a good thing. That's why we do Q&A every Sunday. I want you to ask questions. Some preachers will say, don't question what I say. I'm the man of God here. No, no. You wait to question what Gary says, because Gary can be wrong, okay? And I won't be bothered at all if you question me or say, I'm not sure you're right on that, Pastor. That's perfectly good and fine to ask questions. But they say there's no dumb questions. There really is. When you ask questions when you have no intention of really hearing the answer or accepting it, that's a dumb question. And the Pharisees are asking questions. They're peppering Jesus with questions left and right, 
And he answers them perfectly every time, and they have no intention of changing whatsoever. That's why I have discussions with lost people. I have discussions with people who are atheists, and they ask questions. And I'll say, well, have you considered this, this, and this? And what about these facts? And what about the second law of thermodynamics? And they'll go, yeah, but what about this? I'm like, wait a minute. I just proved you wrong on this sub subject, and you didn't say, oh, okay, great. Yeah, I think maybe the Bible is true. It's like, no, what about this? Yeah, but what about this? Well, is this literal? And they constantly move, and they are asking questions because they have no intention of following Christ. They just want a reason to justify their behavior. Because if the Bible's false, I don't have to worry about all those morality laws. I can be immoral. I don't have to worry about this. I can run my own life. So be careful when you ask questions that you really do want to hear the answer. And if the answer is not what you thought it was, that you need to change your mind instead of changing the truth. But that's what the Pharisees are trying to do. They're trying to find a reason to accuse. Watching Jesus is a good thing. Seeing what Jesus does is a good thing. And finding a reason based on what you just saw is a good thing. But if you're doing it for the wrong reason to accuse them, that's not a good thing. In that same place, people watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might have a reason to believe. It's all in what your questions are about. It's all in what you're watching and what you're looking for. What lens are you looking through? Do you already have preconceived biases against Christianity? Preconceived biases against Jesus, and therefore you're watching to say, aha, see, Christians messed up. That's why I'm not a Christian. Well, all Christians mess up, okay? But Christ doesn't. You see, it all comes down to your motive. What is your motive for questioning? Are you looking for a way out or looking for a way in? But gee, he knew their thoughts. They didn't even say this out loud. He knew what they're thinking. Now, how does Jesus know what they're thinking? Is he a psychic? Is he clairvoyant? No, he's God. He knows their thoughts. First Chronicles 28.9 says, Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord, Yahweh, searches all the hearts and understands every plan and thought. This is another thing, passage is showing that Jesus is God because he knows people's minds and their thoughts. Revelation chapter 2, verse 23. In case you're thinking I'm connecting two things that shouldn't be connected. All the churches will know that I am, this is Jesus speaking in the book of Revelation, I am he who searches minds and hearts. See, Yahweh of the Old Testament says, I know your mind and your heart. Jesus of the New Testament says, I know your mind and heart because they're one and the same. One God distinctly revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's all over the scriptures, all over. It bleeds the Trinity and it bleeds Jesus as God. He knew their thoughts and he said to the man, he doesn't even answer their questions. He says to the man with the withered hand, come, stand here. Now, Jesus is being really direct here. He didn't say, hey, if, if you want to be healed, would you come over here? No, no, this is an order. Get over here. He's being really direct because he don't want this, he don't want this guy to be embarrassed or worry about what anybody else says. He needs to take orders from the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus. I want you to come stand here. And so the guy got up and he did. And Jesus said to them, so he's looking at the, at the man with the withered hand, but he's talking to the people around him. Have you noticed Jesus does that? It's pretty clever the way he does that. Um, several times in the Bible, like one time he's talking to the paralytic. They lowered him through the roof, roof and he's, talk, he's healing him, but he says, you guys are wondering who can forgive sins. He's like talking to the Pharisees, but he's looking at the paralytic. He also, when Mary anoints Jesus' feet with oil, Simon's like, man, he's thinking in his head. If he knew what kind of woman she was, see, we wouldn't even let her touch her, you know? And Jesus is looking at her, but he says, Simon, let me ask you a question. Two people owe one guy a lot of money. I mean, one guy owns a lot of money, one guy owns a little bit. He forgives both debts. Which one do you think will love him more? He said, well, I guess the one who loves, gave more, was forgiven greater debt would love more. And he said, yeah, you've spoken correctly. And the whole time he's looking at her, but he's talking to someone else. And the same thing is here with this man with the withered hand. He's looking at him, but he's talking to the crowd. He's like, it's an interesting dynamic he has going on here. God often, here's the, what I want you to get out of this. God often is speaking into someone else's life, but he's indirectly teaching you a lesson to hear as well. You know, don't just say, wow, I'm glad God did that for Bob. I'm glad God did that, you know, for, for, uh, for Sophia over here. But realize what God is doing in their life, he's wanting you to learn from. You see, a, a, a good man learns from his own mistakes. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others, and a fool never learns. Let's also flip that to the blessings. 
A, a good man can be thankful for his blessings, but a good man, a wise man can learn from the blessings of others. Look at what someone else, what God is doing in someone else's life and realize maybe Jesus is look, dealing with them, but he's talking to you as well. And Jesus said to them, he's still he's talking to them, I ask you, is it lawful to heal um, on, the, on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? So he's asking a rhetorical question, has an obvious answer here. In Luke chapter 14, we fast forward a few chapters, it says, and he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath, will not immediately pull him out? Imagine your family is walking to the synagogue, you're going there to worship, and you see somebody's animals falling in a well. You say, oh, well, it's a Sabbath, you can't do any work. Or worse yet, he goes, imagine someone's child is there. You guys, you tell me you're going to walk to church and ignore the, the animal? Of course not. You're going to do what's good. And he's alluding to the Old Testament with this, the same principles there. So, and after looking around at them all, so he's talking to this guy. He says, hey, come here. Bring your, bring your withered hand. Stand here. And he says, hey, you guys are watching me because you want to know if I'm going to heal. And you're saying I, that would be work if I heal him. How dumb is that? And uh, I mean, how many of you on your way to church this morning, if you saw someone's child falling away, you wouldn't do the work to pull them out? And then it says, and he looked at them all. And I, I really believe all means all. Like he's looking at every Pharisee and I going, you ready? See what I'm about to do? This is what you came to see, right? Okay, watch this. You know, and I believe he's, he's like getting in their face about it. He's being really direct about that. And, he, and, and he's making them feel uncomfortable about it. But that's what people need to do when, they, when they're living in sin and they're not accepting Christ. It should make them feel uncomfortable. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And so God heals, Jesus Christ heals the hand right on the spot. I think this is an interesting hyperlink back to the Old Testament. Remember Moses is standing before God and, and he's appearing in the burning bush and God says, I want you to go back to Egypt and lead my people out. He's like, ah, oh, man, I, I, I can't. I, I'm not a very good speaker and I, all kinds of excuses. And he's like, hey, what's that in your hand? He said, uh, a staff. He said, throw it down. He threw it down. What happened to the staff? Turned into a snake. And then while it's still a snake slithering, he says, what I want you to do, pick it up. I'm like, I ain't picking that up. <laughs> I've, that would be Gary. Moses is like, oh, okay. And he picks it up. As soon as he picks it up, it turns right back into a staff. But remember the second thing he did? He's making more excuses. He said, hey, take your hand, stick it in your robe. Pull it out. Leprosy, instant leprosy. I mean, his hand was just covered in white and was already decaying. And he's like, if, if I don't have your attention by now, Moses, wake up, okay? And Moses is like, oh, what? What, what am I doing? And I believe it was his right hand. I don't know if the text says that or not in Exodus. But he says, okay, take your hand, stick it back in. And when he pulled it out, his wither hand was what? Restored. I think Jesus is saying, hey, I've healed wither hands before. I was the burning bush talking to Moses. And I could do this right here in the synagogue. He says, but they were filled with fury. <laughs> Can people be this hard-hearted? This guy's hand is good now. His right hand that he can now write with, that he can work with, that he can bless and shake hands with, is healed, and they're ticked off. Is your religion that dumb that you can't even see when people are being helped, you're mad about it? You know, I've seen it happen before where someone who's not that clean, not that well organized, not that well, maybe they got scars and face tattoos and everything, they come into church and people are like, oh. are you kidding me? Here's a person coming in wanting to find Christ and we're going to do that? You know, that's why I'm glad we have all people from all backgrounds here in this church because we're not that way. Like, oh, I can only worship people, my class, my education, my color, whatever. We, we need to be what looks like heaven. And this guy, they're ticked off because he doesn't fit their mold. That's crazy. And they discuss with one another, what are we going to do to Jesus? He just performed a miracle right in front of your face. Are you that blind? And the answer is yes. Yes, they're that blind. That's the problem. We live in a culture today where people are blind. Where with something that should be so obvious, you just healed a person, it should be like, yay! And people are mad. You got, we got people in our culture so blind that a man can become pregnant. What, are you crazy? I'm serious. We have all kinds of things where we just have whatever, 2 plus 2 is 47 and a half. It just makes no sense. You know why? It's not like we hate them, we don't. They're blind. 
and you were too before you got saved. I was too. But when you see the light, two plus two is four all day long, and things start making sense. Jesus heals someone, let's be happy for them, not be fear. Religion will blind you more than anything else in the world. And the, the, the culture we live in today, it's just a new religion. It's a new religion. We worship the creature rather than the, create, the creator. Well, here's how this story pans out. Matt Starter, would you mind doing the lights for us? Here's how it looks on the chosen. And as, I, you, as I, I've done in the past, I always teach the passage in detail before I show you the video because I want the Bible to interpret the video, not the other way around, right? So see if you watch carefully. I don't want, I don't want to ruin it for you, but see if you also catch some, maybe an error or two. <laughs> no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way. Shalom. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. I, I see. Because they did not meet you with bread and with what? Excuse me. What are you doing? What is your name? Elam. Your friend Elam has a withered hand. Are you a healer? It is not lawful to heal on Sabbath. Which one of you who has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it who out? Who are you to speak to our congregation in such a of way? How much more value is this man than a sheep? Stop this at once. Come here. Come stand here. Elam, sit down. We don't know this person. He could be a shaman. Is it lawful on Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? This affliction does not threaten his life. It does not even affect his health. Let it up. Good, huh? If he was supposed to be healed, God would have done it himself. Interesting point. Check it out. Gladly. Blasphemer! What is wrong with you? Apparently everything. They're filled with fury. They're religious people, but they hate to see what God is really doing. All right, Dave, just for um, notice the guy was sitting by himself. Nobody wanted to sit near him. You know, man, I don't, I don't ever want to be that church. Okay, um, a long time ago, I was pastoring First Baptist Church in Clute, Texas, and it was a good-sized church, about 400 people, and we had a young, uh, a young couple come in visiting us for the first time. And um, I called them that afternoon and said, hey, thanks for coming to church today, man. We're really glad you were our guest. I hope you had a great time. They said, yeah, the music was great. Your sermon was good. We really liked it. But Pastor, we'll just be really upfront with you. We're not coming back. And I'm like, what? I mean, they, they told me they liked everything. Like that. I said, what, what's wrong? Did something happen? They said, well, yeah. We came in. We sat down. And an older couple came to us and said, uh, excuse us, you're in our seats. You need to move. Sunday night sermon was totally different <laughs> over Sunday morning sermon. 
And uh, you know, we can't be that. We should be like, hey, come sit with me. Or I'm glad you're sitting in my seat. Or I'm glad you're different than I am. I don't care what culture you're from, what color you are, what class, what level of education. None of that. Maybe if you don't smell great, I don't care. We should be around those people. Let me ask you a question. What did you see that you thought was not exactly accurate? Chris. Yeah, and in the video, it's his left hand. In the Bible, it's his right hand. Good, good observation. What else? Patrick. He said sheep, said ox, yeah. So, um, again, I don't know if, I don't think, I've searched it, I've looked for it. Is, did Jesus do this similar miracle another time? If, if it happened, I don't remember that. So, yes, what was another one? Anybody else notice something? Michaela? The Pharisees weren't waiting on him, right? They weren't waiting and watching. In fact, Luke says Jesus was teaching, and they're watching him teach. And in the middle of his teaching, he does this. So, again, I want you to watch The Chosen, but just watch it with your, with your antennas up, ready to, uh, to observe and to know and, and interpret the Bible, uh, and not just interpret The Chosen. Sometimes people won't accept Jesus because they won't repent of their sin. That, that happens often. There's people who are like, yeah, I would come to God, but that would mean I have to stop this lifestyle, and I don't, I'm right, ready to give it up. Okay, I understand that. But other people won't accept Jesus because they won't repent of their religion. I've shared the gospel with people, and they say, yeah, well, I was born and raised this way. I'm like, okay, but this is the truth. Even if your grandmother grew up in this church over here, if this is what the Bible says, you got to walk away from that. Imagine being an, a Muslim, and you come to Christ, which, by the way, thousands of them are through all that's happening right now, and you tell your family, I I'm a follower of Christ now. Do you know they have a funeral for you, and they consider you dead? They disown you. They don't want to talk to you. A few years ago in Ontario, Canada, there was a young lady who was a Muslim from Lebanon. She became a Christian. She had to flee the country because she feared for her life. They hired someone to find her in Ontario and, Ontario and kill her. And in Islam, they call that an honor killing because she disgraced her family by coming a, becoming a Christian. You know, and there's a lot of people that won't, don't won't give up the religion. They're very proud of the religion. The religion makes them feel good. But let me tell you something. The religion will send you to hell. Christ is the one who saves you. Christ is the one who, who teaches the truth, and we need to accept him no matter what it is. Let me tell you, I can tell you honestly, if, if someone could show me from Scripture that everything I, would, I believe is wrong, as uncomfortable as it would be for me, the following Sunday I would resign as your pastor and say, I've been wrong, and y'all go find a church that teaches the right. I would honestly do that. It would mean I lose my job. It means I lose everything I've stood for for 37 years. But I'm willing to do that. I know that'd be hard, but I'm willing. If someone could show me that what I'm teaching is wrong, and I mean I'm talking about drastically wrong and like the core of what we're teaching here, I'm not talking about disagreeing on minor issues. I'm just saying if, if I was teaching the gospel wrong, it would be the end. And a lot of people aren't willing to walk away from that. So they discuss with one another what they might do with Jesus. So now they're making threats. They're not just talking about we're going to have a party for Jesus. No, they're talking about killing him. But the question is asked to you today. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? You see, some people saw Jesus do that miracle, like, oh, wow, he really is the Messiah. He has God come to save us. And other people, like, he's messing with my religion. We got to do something with this guy. And your reaction is going to be, Jesus, there was no middle ground um, reaction to Jesus. There's no mushy, well, he's okay. You, you know, what we see in our culture today, well, I don't believe Jesus is God. I just believe he's a good man and good teacher. Baloney. A good man, a good teacher, does not go around telling people, I'm God. That's an idiot. That is a lunatic, that, or that's a liar. He's either a liar or a lunatic, or he really is the Lord. There's no middle ground with Jesus. You either love him and embrace him, or you hate him and want nothing to do with him. There's not meant to be a middle ground. Where are you that stand at this morning? In Romans chapter 6, it says that the wages of sin, which we've all sinned, what you deserve for what your sin is death. But God doesn't want you to die. But he has to be just. So he sent Christ to die in your place to take the penalty of all of us upon his own shoulders. And now you don't have to be punished. You don't have to die and be separated from God forever. He offers you a free gift. It's a free gift. That's redundant. You don't work for a gift. You don't buy a gift. You simply believe and receive it. And that free gift is a gift of God. It's eternal life through Christ and what he did on the cross. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I give up, 
I've run my own life for long enough. I give it to you. You're the boss of my life. You're the Lord of my life. I believe you died for me. You paid for all my sins. You've bought me with your own blood. So since you gave everything for me, I give everything to you. If you do that, what does it say in red? You will be saved. Do you believe that this morning? Would you pray with me? As we, everyone's heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and you're praying and you're having a conversation with God right now, my question for you is, what will you do with Jesus? Have you accepted him as your Lord and your Savior? Can you think back to a time when you gave your life to Christ and you believed in the gospel, that he died, was buried, and literally rose again? If you haven't made that decision, whether you're watching online or you're here in person with us, you can trust Christ right now. I'm not asking you to convert to religion. I'm asking you to accept the Savior. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this story of Jesus and his teaching. Father, this is definitely new wine that we cannot fit into old wineskins. This is not some patch to put on our old life. This is a new life that he's offering us. And Father, I just pray if there's anyone today who has not trusted Christ, that they would do so today. And uh, we thank you for, for what you've done for us. And we praise Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. If you still have questions about Christianity, there's my cell phone number. Call me, text me. I'll buy you lunch. We'll talk about it. I'll answer your questions and we'll make you a follower of Christ. Um, let me encourage you. If, you. if there's someone you want to hear the messages like this, that, to join you, maybe sitting in the seat next to you, you want them to be there, invite someone to, to church this next week. You can grab some of those business cards out there. has all the information on it. And pass those out and invite your friends and relatives to church. All right, we're going to do question and answer session. But I have a really weird problem. I set my phone down somewhere, and I do not know where it's at. Seriously. Yes, thank you, Patrick. And I, was going to, I got a new Apple Watch because my other one broke. And I can't find the feature where you'd ping your phone. And I didn't want to ping it during church. So thank you, Patrick. How are you? Good deal. Um, Ashley Sharp. What did you say? I'm sorry. No. <laughs> All right. So if you have any questions, text them into that number right there. Or if you'd rather, um, if you'd rather uh, raise your hand, you could do that as well. All right. There you go. There's our first question. All right. Oh, can you turn turn this mic on for me? Is this on? I don't think this is. Sounds on. like. Oh, it. okay. Maybe it's just really quiet. That's fine. I talk loud. How is a proper spiritual fasting, fastening, is it fasting? Maybe proper fasting. spiritual fasting. Yeah. yeah, good. Um, Well, just as a caveat, so nobody sues me, you want to consult with your doctor and make sure you, before you start skipping meals, okay? Um, <clears throat> but yes, can it be physical, physically beneficial? Absolutely. But its primary purpose is to be spiritually beneficial, to clear your mind. So good thing to do is, you know, the day before, make sure you're drinking plenty of fluids, getting electrolytes and all that stuff like that. And then you skip a, a period of time. You know, that's why they call it breakfast. You break the fast because if you ate your last meal at 6.30 and you wake up the next morning at 6.30, if you've been fasting for 12 hours, you're going to break the fast. So you could go to bed and, and decide, I'm not going to eat again until sundown the next day. Some people do it for several days. Um, Jesus did for how many? 40 days. And I've told you the story before, but a guy who was into the New Age movement, wasn't even a Christian, was doing fasting for his, for his meditation and Hinduism and stuff like that. Uh, and they asked him, what's the longest you can go uh, fasting without doing damage to your body? He said about 40 days. I'm like, that, that Jesus knew what he was doing long before doctors knew that. Um, anyway, but every, here's the thing. Every time you're hungry and you're wanting food, you start praying. And say, God, fill the void. And every time you're, there's a hunger pang, it's a reminder to pray and take in the bread of life rather than physical bread. And so read the scriptures, pray, and go throughout the day. You can work while you're fasting, do all those things like that. But make sure that whenever the hunger hits, that's the cue to go to scripture, go to prayer, go to the Lord. And you'll see as your body is cleansing itself, your mind will clear. And you actually, your prayers become more intense. Um, so anyway. Uh, I don't do it enough. I'll just confess that sin to you. I, I need to do it more often as well. I've done it, but not as often as I should. Could we possibly do like a, a church fast or some kind of connection? I think that I think would be a should. good idea. If you yeah. To 
Yeah. yeah. You remember we did the 40 days of, what was it called a few years ago? The 40 days of something in our church. They offered us the same program, the 40 days of prayer, which involves days. fasting. Okay. Yeah. I think that's what the other deacon was. That's about seven years ago we did that whole, anyway, go ahead. Will there be babies or children in heaven? Not will they go to heaven, but will they still be young in heaven? Isaiah eleven six to 9 talks about the uh, the leopard and goat and lion and calf being led by a little child. That, that's a great thing. So we've got to distinguish heaven from the kingdom, okay? The kingdom will be heaven here on earth, and heaven even eventually after the thousand-year reign of Christ, he will destroy this earth and create a new heaven and a new earth, and heaven will be on earth, okay? So in the thousand-year reign of Christ, you'll see children even being born, and that's where you have fulfillment of that scripture in Isaiah, you know, where they'll stick their hand in and play with snakes, all kinds of stuff like that, and they'll play with the animals, the leopards, and all that stuff. Um, so that's during the kingdom. In my opinion, and everybody say my opinion? Mm-hmm. My opinion, so don't, don't say well, this must be true. You have to study for yourself. I believe when we're, once we're in the eternal state after the thousand-year reign, we're all adults, okay? And the reason I say that is because what heaven on earth is is the restoration of the Garden of Eden. God didn't create two babies in the Garden of Eden. He created Adam and Eve and said, hey, be fruitful, multiply. So they are obviously were teens or older, whatever. So whatever you think the perfect age is, 21, I don't know, I think that's what will be for eternity. Whatever, you're fully mature, but you're not aging. I think that's what it will be. That, again, that's my opinion, but I think there's a lot of biblical principles for that. Biologically, it's 25. Your brain stops. That's stop right. Growing. That's when your brain stops developing. There we go. 25 years. How many 25-year-olds we have? Me. Great. You're perfect. There we go. <laughs> okay, this is a long one. Um, in Exodus, it discusses several plagues against Egypt. One of the plagues states that all the livestock in Egypt dies, and then later in the same chapter, God sends hail that kills the livestock in the field. Do we have any sense of how much time has passed between these two events? My assumption is that the Egyptians went to buy more livestock after the fifth plague so that they had more when the seventh plague of hail arrived. So the plague of the livestock is Exodus 9, 6 to 7. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but none of the, not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Then in the plague of hail, Exodus 9, 20 to 21, then whoever feared the Lord, feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Wow. I have never heard this question. This is really good. <laughs> it's a long, but it's good. <clears throat> so... We don't know exactly how much time passed, okay, but it wasn't years based on the timing uh, in Exodus, but it could have been months, it could have been time, I think they answered their own question well, to go get the livestock from Israel, okay, I don't know if the exclusion where they brought them in, was that applying to the Egyptians? It was saying to anyone who feared God among Pharaoh's servants. So if an Egyptian feared God, like, oh, I'm, I'm seeing these plagues and I'm not stupid, and they brought their cattle in. But that, that was after the, the, the plague of okay. the livestock. So, okay, that's where I'm wrong. So I think, okay. the, I think the question is answering itself. They're saying, um, did they just go buy more after yeah. the fifth one? Because they're hungry. They, they could have bought so from Israel. They could have bought from any of the surrounding countries. nations, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. happened all the time. We saw a lot of trade between nations. So that's very plausible. <clears throat> so I'm see, this is a great example of what I was talking about earlier. If you're a skeptic and you don't want to believe the Bible, you'd say, aha, contradiction. <laughs> Why not just answer it with common sense? Like, they went and bought other cattle from somewhere else. I mean, what would you do? They still eat meat. You know? You gotta have those so, I mean, burgers. does the Bible answer that question? Not that I know of, but I think common sense could answer it. But I, I'm going to study that one more. So, I, I don't know. That's great. Um, will my cat be in heaven? No. Next question. <laughs> <clears throat> um, now, contrary to what Disney teaches, all dogs don't go to heaven. Okay? But we know all cats go to hell for sure. Okay. See, Gary and I disagree <coughs> on this because we talked about this before. Do you remember? Yeah. Because you said that animals don't have a choice. They're spiritual choice. They can't choose Jesus, right. so they don't go to heaven. That's right. And I think by default that means they all go because they right. That's right. Yeah. mature enough to make a choice. <coughs> now, so. Actually, if I saw your cat, I would be nice to it. I, I'm, I, it's mostly just a joke. I just my, sar- my, my spiritual gift of sarcasm bleeds I guess the question through. is, will there be dinosaurs in heaven? Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> yes. 
Again, if it's paradise restored, yes. I would think so. Could Son of Man also be a hyperlink to the garden? Son of Man, as God originally intended, stemming from the seed of Adam and the importance of what happened in the biblical genealogy and the line of Seth and so on, like a patient chess player, God's checkmate was Jesus Christ. I think so. I, I don't want to say yes without studying that one further. Um, hmm. What I think of is Luke's genealogy, where it says it, it traces through Joseph, and it goes son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, um, son, um, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. And so the emphasis back there is the son of God. So I would say that that would not apply, but I'd have to study that one further to give you a better the, answer. The seed of the woman, son of man, like how is that balanced? Right. Then? So um, so the, seed of the, the reason there was a virgin birth is because Romans says that by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. So everybody who has a biological father has sin nature. Just like you get your X and Y chromosomes from your dad, you inherit certain diseases, uh, fr from your dad, you get other things from your mom, you inherit your sin nature from your dad. So everybody who has a biological father has a sin nature. Well, guess who didn't have a biological father? Jesus. But he had the seed of a woman, he had the egg of a woman, so he could be 100% human, but he didn't have the seed of the man, so he didn't get a sin nature, so he could be 100% human without sin. That's why the virgin birth is so necessary. Um, so, but that, uh, that, so the son of man phrase, I'd have to study further. I couldn't give you an honest answer about that uh, if that's a reference to Adam. We know he is the second Adam. That, that's he true. He didn't walk around saying he was seed of the woman. That was not his title. No, that's right. That's very good. Yeah. And it, that's all the questions. All right, great. All right, let's stand. And we're going to read God's word as a blessing over one another. Again, if you're a guest, we're so glad that you're here. And y'all take time to welcome our guests. Oh, um, let me also say that at 12.30, which is 27 minutes away, we'll, we'll have the memorial service in here for uh, Miss Reva Byers, Pastor Stan's wife. And um, everybody's welcome to stay for that, but you don't have to stay for that. That's why we're putting a gap between the two. So if you need to leave, that's fine. But if you would like to stay, we're going to have a meal afterwards. Everybody is welcome for that. We have enough food to feed plenty of people. So, uh, all right, let's read God's word and, ask, and read this, this Aaronic blessing over one another. Verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. <laughs>